From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 61, we feature Jonathan Wilson's editorial from the upcoming issue 23, which will be available to subscribers from the 5th of December and on general pay-what-you-like download sale from December the 12th. If you've listened to the previous 60 or so episodes, you'll know that we don't have any advertising on the podcast. That's because we want the articles to be able to speak for themselves. In order for them to continue to do that, though, we need people to support the magazine on which the podcast is based. And if you'll indulge us for just a minute, Christmas is around the corner and we'd like to take this chance to remind you that Christmas gift subscriptions to The Blizzard are available from theblizzard.co.uk. If you've been enjoying these audio editions but have never bought a hard copy of the magazine, then this is an ideal time to put one on your letter to Santa, or ask your wife, girlfriend, mum, dad, husband, boyfriend, whatever, to put one in your Christmas stocking. Individual print editions of the Blizzard can be yours for as little as £6 plus postage and packing, while our digital subscriptions start at £12 for a year, and our print subscriptions from £35 in the UK, £45 in Europe and £55 for the rest of the world. With your subscription you get complete access to the entire back catalogue of digital editions, as well as helping support this podcast, the magazine and football writing in general. If you're already a print subscriber or a digital subscriber, then well done. You can always help us out, however, by recommending this podcast to a friend or leaving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. Every bit of help we can get in spreading the word, particularly this time of year, is really, really appreciated. For more information on gift subscriptions, hard copies or our t-shirts from our friends at goalsoul.net, head to theblizzard.co.uk. Without any further ado, we give you Jonathan Wilson's editorial from issue 23. There was a time when loudmouth megalomaniacs of questionable political beliefs were football managers, and quietly eloquent, slightly bland men who avoided giving offence were politicians. With Gareth Southgate, at the time of writing seemingly about to be appointed England manager, and Donald Trump president-elect of the USA, it's hard not to think that at some point we got that the wrong way round. What sense, after all, can you make of a world in which a childish joke about the way a predecessor speaks, and a vague interest in taking on extra work expressed in private, can lead you to being forced to resign from being England manager, while racism and misogyny freely expressed during the campaign, an open contempt for the democratic process, a catalogue of allegations of sexual assault, and a fraud case settled out of court for $25 million, a seemingly no obstacle to becoming US president. If it genuinely meant the England manager was held to higher account than the US president, then perhaps English football could take some pride in it. Perhaps the FA executives did genuinely think such conduct was unbecoming of the office. If they did, it's a little weird and quaint, but it's laudable, In the modern world, any semblance of decency, of having values, is to be supported. But the suspicion must be that it was just part of the craven populism that has taken hold at the FA, of which the poppy Farrago is the most crass. There's been a creeping militarisation about football for some years. It used to be that the only military presence at an FA Cup final was in the red-coated form of the band of the Coldstream Guards. But now... There's commonly a military presence on the pitch before kick-off, as though khaki were part of the cup final ritual. Other than strengthening the bond between football and the military, a strange US import that should be resisted, 
What is the link? Is it some antiquated sense that both are somehow rugged, manly activities? It's not clear what purpose the soldiers serve. It's certainly not to bring military precision to the formalities. Last season's cup final kicked off four minutes late because the army was slow in removing the covers from the pitch. Football's modern obsession with war is bizarre. It shouldn't need saying, but it's not war. Not even war without the shooting, as Orwell had it. It's a game. It probably is appropriate that on the weekend of Remembrance Sunday, public events such as football matches conduct a minute silence. It probably is useful to encourage people to take a minute to think, whether they are remembering specific people they have lost, the losses of war in a more general sense, or reflecting on the values that wars are supposedly fought for, which certainly would not involve forcing people to wear a symbol if they didn't want to. And still, however much minutes of silence have been debased by overuse, there is tremendous power in the silence of a stadium of tens of thousands of people. But what value is there in every club holding a minute's silence before the home game nearest to Remembrance Sunday? For 90 years after the first Armistice Day, nobody felt the need to do that. So why now? What is gained by dragging out the remembrance process from a weekend to a fortnight? If anything, it reduces the impact of the silences. They become part of a routine. It's as though every club needs to signal that it is remembering, for fear that it might be accused of not. A similar impulse seemed to underlie the FA's stance on the poppies for the Scotland game. Again, this is a modern phenomenon. In 1999, England also faced Scotland on the second weekend in November. Nobody printed a poppy on a shirt or demanded a minute's silence then. So why now? Because the First World War is longer ago, do we have to remember harder? FIFA's stance on this is entirely reasonable. It has 209 members. It cannot be expected to investigate the nuances every time one of those members wants to add a symbol to its shirt. What seems virtuous or harmless to one country may be deeply offensive elsewhere, so all additional symbols are banned. For England to demand that regulation not apply to them is ridiculous and arrogant. It's got nothing to do with how appropriate or necessary we may deem the poppy. The whole business of poppies on shirts is an uncomfortable one, making it something a player has to opt out of rather than opting into. James McLean is the only player so far to do so, but there are plenty of people across the world who have reason not to look kindly on the British military. Given the general sentiment in Argentina about the Falklands, you wonder how Argentinian players feel about wearing them. It's all very well saying the poppy memorialises all war dead of any nation, but the fact is that the poppies are produced by the Royal British Legion, who, to their credit, seem embarrassed by the climate that sees those not wearing a poppy hounded. When the BBC feels the need to pin one on the cookie monster during the one show, you know a certain level of absurdity has been reached. But the poppies are just part of a wider trend, one that goes far beyond football. In an indirect but nonetheless clear way, one that runs quite contrary to their initial intention, the obsession with poppies is tied to a militaristic nationalism of a sort that has been unleashed across the world in the past year, fanned by a reckless populism. In economic, moral and human terms, the consequences could be devastating. The weeks since Trump's election and since the Brexit vote have seen countless pieces trying to explain what has happened. I've no intention of adding to that here, other than to reflect on the loss of faith in the institution of journalism. When major newspapers and television stations distort facts as brazenly as many have in the past weeks, 
Is it any wonder that their authority has leached away, and that large swathes of the world seem unable any more to differentiate between what is fake and what is real? Aldous Huxley feared truth would drown in a sea of irrelevance. It's a line that's nagged at me over the past weeks. If the liberal consensus is coming to an end, if the far right is rising as alarmingly as it appears to be, what value is there in expending as much energy as I do thinking about football? Perhaps there is none, and perhaps, as David Icke says in this issue, football is just an opiate to distract us from the real problems. But it is more than that. If nothing else, the increasing disparity in wealth between the haves and the have-nots in football precisely mirrors the wider economic trend. And, more optimistically, in a world that appears determined to turn inwards and close itself off from wider responsibilities, it remains determinedly internationalist. It is inefficient, run by an awkward coalition of the ineffectual and the self-serving, and has enriched the rich at the expense of the poor, but at least it still has a global vision. In that, perhaps, there is some small sliver of hope. <laughs>